Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Pretty Scary. Pretty Scary Boo. Boo! I'm Adam Todd Brown. And I'm Cindy Arvina. That makes us your hosts. Cindy, how's it going? It's going. I'm like, I'm about to go on this uh, giant South American cruise over the holidays. And I'm, I swear there's just, I'm trying to cram everything in before I leave as far as like seeing people and getting things ready. And, uh, yeah, I just kind of want time to pack now. I'm over <laughs> I'm over the, the pleasantries. Oh, yeah. No, when, it's nice. It's nice. Yeah, that does sound fun. You mentioned that cruise before. During the holidays, too. That's going to be awesome. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm pumped. Good times. You're going to have a lot of free time, seeing as how you're on a cruise out there in the middle of, middle of the ocean. You know what you could do to pass some time? What's up? Play Tetris. Ooh, oh, that's a good one. Did you like that segue? The segue brought to you by Segway. Segway, when you need a segue, <laughs> Segway. We're talking about the Tetris murders. We sure are. I didn't know anything about this. No, me neither. I was just scrolling through, I think, Amazon, because I subscribed to Discovery Plus through Amazon. And I think I was just scrolling through, like, Prime Video, and it said the Tetris murders. What? Yeah, I was, I was expecting like someone's last name to be Tetris. Yeah, or it would be funny if this was like a murder that happened because of the outcome of a Tetris tournament. Oh, yes. That I would want to watch. But I also wanted to watch this. And it is actually really good. It is not about the victim of an overzealous Tetris player. It's about the co-founder of Tetris and mm -hmm. how his entire family got fucking murdered. It's so tragic and weird and sad. It's very sad. In this documentary, what I like about it is there is some actual good police work happening in this documentary. Normally, a case like this, there's a bunch of shitty police work and then some podcaster fucking solves the crime 18 years <laughs> later using Google Maps. But for one thing, this has not been solved. Well, they would argue it's been solved. The city where it happened would argue yeah. it's been solved, but uh, I don't believe them. I think there is more to this. Way more. I have so many questions. Yeah, it's, let's just get into it. It let's happened, it. <laughs> this happened in Palo Alto, California, September 22nd, 1998. The documentary interviews a bunch of cops, the main one being Detective Sandra Brown, no relation. <laughs> who is former Palo Alto PD. She was the lead investigator on the case. In 1998, September 22nd, they're all called to a home in Palo Alto where they find a whole family 
murdered. The wife and kid are both dead in their beds, bludgeoned to death and stabbed to death, which that's a lot. It's overkill. It's overkill. Especially for that kid. Come on. Like, how do you stab a kid a bunch of times while he's sleeping? Mm. That takes a very troubled individual. And the immediate suspect was the dad, who was dead on the floor a few feet away from the kid. His throat is cut super deep, and he has a knife still in his hand. I immediately thought that was weird. Yeah. Clutched. Yeah. The family is identified as Vladimir Pokilko who is, as it turns out, the co-founder of Tetris, mm-hmm. Yelena Fedotova, and their child, Peter Pokilko. And they were discovered by a family friend who informs the police, hey, this guy co-created Tetris, which, uh, what, what are your thoughts on Tetris? Oh, I've played hours of it. <laughs> I love it so much. It's like, those it's- are like the only kind of video games I'm good at. Yeah, because it's ones that you can just like, they're, it's like a massage for your brain. You can play that game and hold a conversation with somebody, or you can just like sit silently in your room for hours, just like putting things together and watching the the rose fade away. And they show how true it is that you can play this game while carrying on a conversation because they have like a (laughs) Tetris master that they interview. And that dude is just casually racking up hundreds of thousands of points on Tetris while talking to the cameras. Like the pieces are moving so fast and he's just knocking that shit out. Very impressive. I was going to call him the czar of Tetris. That's pretty appropriate. (laughs) That's all right. Yeah, that's the right way to put it. (laughs) I like the cop who they're interviewing all the different cops. And I like the one who is like, you know, when I was playing all those hours of Tetris in the 80s, I had no idea it would be related to a murder case I'd be involved in years later. And it's like, oh, no, you didn't see that coming? Because every time I played Mike Tyson's punch out, I was like, I'm going to fucking solve this guy's murder someday. (laughs) And it did not come to pass. So weird she had the opposite experience as me. Yeah, it's very strange. (laughs) I do have one gripe about this documentary. I guess you have to put all the history of Tetris stuff in there, but it carried on for a while. This first episode feels a little bit like an episode of The Toys That Made Us. Yeah, and it is very interesting. It's good fodder for the whole through line of the thing. But at a certain point, it's like, okay, we we get it. He invented Tetris. I found it way more interesting that... His involvement in Tetris was the psychological aspect because he was a psychologist. He was a clinical researcher in Russia, and he was very interested in how a game like Tetris could build someone's cognitive functions. Yeah, and his involvement in it kind of ends there, which ends Mm -hmm. up being a pretty important detail later because there's three people who kind of make Tetris huge in the United States. And he's one of them, but the other two go off and do their own thing, and he is kind of out there on his own, and that turns into an issue later. The other creator, Alexei Pajnatov, he's the, like, programming half Mm -hmm. of it. Like, he came up with the actual game. And for a minute there, I was like, man, Alexei better goddamn well be the person who killed this guy. (laughs) That's what I was thinking, too. You were spending a lot of time on Alexei. Holy shit. They, not enough time, if you freaking ask me. Not enough? Well, I mean, in the yeah. beginning, yes, but then at the end, I was like, wait, 
Are y'all just going to leave Alexi on the table like that? We'll, we'll get to it. But like, I have so many questions about that whole relationship. Yeah, Alexi seems like he might be a little bit of a shade tree. He did not speak to the producers of this. They reached out to him and he didn't want to talk. Yeah, which I, I mean, based off where this documentary goes, I do kind of get it. But also like, I just, I have so many questions about him. Yeah. Yeah, there's this... There's just a lot of questions in general. Like, even when we get into the murder itself, like, it's obvious this guy didn't kill his family. But the murder, the way it happens, it's, like, equal parts brilliant and, like, the sloppiest fucking thing. Yeah. Like, they just fucked up a couple details. And this probably would have looked a whole lot more like a murder-suicide than it did. But also argue with the results. No one's ever been arrested. It's still classified a murder-suicide. So, who knows? A lot of fuckery at play on this one. I, I, I just know it. Yeah. This is not a case that has been solved. That's for sure. And initially, like I said, the thought on this murder was that it was a murder-suicide. Mm-hmm. On account of how Vladimir had a knife in his hand. He used a hammer and that knife to kill his wife and kid, and then he used the knife to kill himself. That was the official explanation. And the couple was having arguments about money and whatnot in the run-up to the murders, which here's the thing. If you are married and your spouse is murdered, here's hoping you had absolutely no problems in your life because these lazy fucking police are out here looking for that one problem to go, oh, well... Cindy fucking murdered Chris because, you know, he spent $15 at <laughs> fucking sunglass hut that she didn't want him to, according to this one text. And we're like, really? That's okay. That that doesn't sound right, but you're the cops. And like, yeah. this is the same thing. They're like, well, they were arguing about money. Motherfucker, everybody argues about money. Yeah. They're, they have joint stock. And not only... Did they have the, you know, what was going on in the U.S.? They also had their yoga business out in Russia still. Yeah. And then that was not doing well. I think they said that they were fighting over, like, how can we get that to kind of take off? Yeah. He had to lay off employees in Russia. They were sending him angry emails about it. Like, even that, it's like they're employees in Russia who got laid off. What are they going to do? Come over here and do something about it? Yeah. Of course not. They do also... Just kind of throw out there that Vladimir practiced sleep deprivation. And it's like, why? What yeah. Is, like, I get that you're, you know, you're into the psychological aspect of things, but get some sleep, bud. Yeah. They said he got down to like two hours a night at the height of it. Why? Why would you why? want that? Why would you do it on yourself? Why aren't you doing test subjects in like a, a controlled environment or like paying them to do it? I think on yourself, you're not really going to have the mental wherewithal to really gather uh, good conclusions or data. Yeah. And you got the kid right there. Just go exactly. in and give that little tyke a jostle every two hours yes. and see how he performs at school the next day. That's all you need. Yeah. Just abuse your kid. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, they just kind of throw that out there without ever really explaining why he did that or what it has to do with it. I think at one point, one of the theories was that, oh, well, the sleep deprivation made him crazy and that's why he killed his family. But that's also never really proven. It's just a thing the cops are like, yeah, what do you think? Maybe. Yeah. They're like theory number one. And then they move <laughs> right the fuck on. <laughs> right. 
but then the cops start looking into how and why this family came to the United States. And that's when it gets uh, Russian government interesting. Mm-hmm. Because they developed Tetris at a point in Russian history where the Russian government, much like now, if you invent some cool shit, they're going to come to you and be like, mm, that's mostly ours now. Yeah. KGB's like, hand it over. Yeah. Put it and, in my hand. And that happened. And this family ended up fleeing Russia over it, essentially. Like, there's more details to it. But so he, like, co-created Tetris, but isn't really making any money out of it. No, not compared to the numbers it was doing all over the world. Right. But somehow when he gets to the United States, Alexi comes to the United States also, and they meet up with this guy named Hank Rogers. Hank, Hank. not Hank, <laughs> Hank Rogers. And they kind of partner up and he gets them back into a position where they actually have some ownership in Tetris and are making at least some money on it. I don't remember exactly how it happens, but that's sort of the point where this split happens, where Alexi and Hank kind of go off to run Tetris and Vladimir goes off and starts his own thing. Yeah, because Hank was able to get Alexi intellectual property rights to Tetris because he was like the brains of the operation. Right. I don't know why Vladimir was not able to partake in the IP of it all, but he wasn't, but he was kind of set up with his own tech company that they were hoping would grow to the level of Tetris. Yeah, it was called Animatech. The game they tried to blow it up with was like a fishing simulator. Yeah, you could like make your own like crossbreeds of fish and <laughs> it was like a cat's paw would like, it looked really cute. I would play the game. It looked really cute, but it did not have quite the success of Tetris. No, it wasn't not like even close. fish parts falling down into a pile <laughs> that you have to arrange neatly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So back to the crime scene. Mm-hmm. One of the first things Sandra Brown is weirded out by, and this is when I say the people who did this were sloppy in a lot of ways, even though they pretty much got away with it. One of the things she notices is that Vladimir used two different hammers in this attack. It's like, who are you, Paul Pelosi? (laughs) There were not two hammers, you fucking weirdos. But why would he do that? Like, did he break one of the hammers killing his wife? Probably not. Like, for some reason, there's two hammers used. Which, why? Why would you do that? There's no real reason for it. It doesn't make sense. And she also has the same question I had, which is how is he still holding the knife if he used it to cut his own throat? Yeah, because the way she described it is like normally like as soon as you start to like break skin, like your reactions come in and you drop usually. Yeah. It's a thing you actually hear in the Kurt Cobain. I'm just going to say it. The fucking Kurt Cobain murder where there's a, a similar thing where the way his hand is on that shotgun, like the shotgun shouldn't 
be in the position it's in in relation to where the shell casings went. And the police are just like, yeah, he had like a death spasm. And they point out in this documentary that those almost don't ever happen. Like, yeah, rarely, if ever, has it ever been documented. But it's always the excuse in situations like this. They're like, well, why are they still holding the weapon? Uh, Death, death spasm. Fucking cops, man. Fishy. Mm -hmm. Fucking cops. So she doesn't like that. Also, the blood spatter is really weird. It's at like knee level. Yeah. For him to have cut his own throat and had that blood go where it did, he would kind of have to be facing, like laying face down on the ground already and then cut his own throat. How does that work? It's like if he's laying face down and gets his throat cut, it's because someone was on top of him cutting his fucking throat. And she says, you know, you would expect if he's distraught from having just killed his wife and kid, and now he's walked a few feet away from his kid... If the plan is to cut your throat, you're just going to do it standing up and fucking get it over with. You're not going to lay down and do this weird ritual. And also, yeah, the angle at which he cut his throat. It's like from the bottom toward the back of his ear, which also implies and very deep, which also implies someone was just behind him and did it. But just because he had the knife in his hand, they were like, no, this is a murder suicide. Which so weird. That's the thing. It's good police work on the part of the people in this documentary, but it's ultimately not that effective because nothing ever changes. There's no arrests in this. It is a lot like the Kurt Cobain murder in that because of how the Seattle PD handled cases like that at the time, like any beat cop could just be like, yeah, that's a suicide. And they wouldn't send out homicide detectives. That's exactly what happened with Kurt Cobain. Some fucking beat cop was like, oh, there's a shotgun. He left his ID out. It's a suicide. And they never investigated it. So there's also no fingerprints on the faucet handles. Like, what? How? In a house with a child and two adults, the faucet handles have no fingerprints. Yeah, like if he's planning to die and kill us, what what, what does he give a shit if there's anything on the, the handles? Yeah, why would he wipe anything down? If he was trying to commit suicide after this, I mean, unless he was like wiping stuff down and was like, oh, this isn't going to work. But (laughs) that's that's seems unlikely. And then there's also the suicide note on his desk, which says, I've been eaten alive. Vladimir, just remember that I am exist the devil. And that's the devil, but spelled with an A. Yeah. And Sandra Brown thinks it might be fake. And I do, too. That's a, what a weird note. Yeah. Like, this is the last thing that you're going to write in your whole life. You choose to write it in your not native tongue and just kind of like incoherent, strange. Like, I don't know. It, it's all like, that part of it was really fishy too. It's like, it was in English. At one point, one person did say it was partly in Russian, but then they never like confirmed what it could have said in Russian. They were like, no, it was in English. Yeah, it's strange. The The note is really strange. They also find documents that are burned in a grill in the backyard, like a charcoal grill, but they're not burned enough that the cops can't tell what they are. Also highly suspicious. How do you, like this guy has killed his family, is planning to kill himself. What's the rush with burning the documents? Burn them all the way. Like burning paper is pretty easy. Yeah. Like 
if that was really him doing that, he had all the time in the world to make sure they burned properly. And also, like you said, it's the same thing as the wipe in the faucets. Why? Why burn Why? the documents if you're going to kill everyone? It doesn't make any sense at all. Like you'd think if those documents had some indication of why he did it, you would want people to find him. Yeah. But if you're going to be gone, what what do you have to hide anymore? Yeah. It's, it's very weird. And also the way the wife and kid are killed is nuts. Yeah. They are both hit in the head twice with a hammer, and then they are each stabbed 11 times. Exactly. 11 times. Exactly two blows to the head with a hammer. That seems like a message. Or yeah. Unlucky 13, 13. Yeah. Like, it, that's, that seems choreographed. And again, two hammers. Not one. Two hammers. <laughs> like, this seems like a home invasion. Like, someone broke in this man's house and killed him and his family. Yeah. But it's still ruled a murder-suicide. None of the cops investigating at the scene believe that. So now we're on to episode two. And they open the episode by recounting what the crime would have looked like if it happened the way it was initially determined to happen. And it's nuts. It makes it makes no sense. He Here's how it would have gone. He goes into the bedroom, bludgeons Yelena with a hammer. He then drops that hammer goes back out to the garage, gets another hammer, comes in, bludgeons his kid with that hammer. Then he goes out again and grabs a knife that he comes back in the house with, stabs the wife 11 times, the kid 11 times, then wipes down the hammers. There's no fingerprints on the hammers. He wipes down the faucet, burns a bunch of documents, cuts himself at the weirdest angle possible, and then dies holding the knife in his hand. One more weird detail, the knife had palm prints, but no fingerprints. So fucking weird. And one of the cops is holding the exact same kind of knife, and he's like, look, look at how I'm holding it. There's fingerprints. Like, there's obviously going to be fingerprints. You can't just, like, palm the thing into your hand. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, you're not throwing a fucking slider, buddy. <laughs> And I do like that this documentary so far is not a celebration of shitty police work. It's the police for once being like, fucking, we're doing our best. Like, we think this is a murder. We're like, like, they're really going after these details. Most of them. Most of them. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a few where it's like, wow, you're really going to die on this hill, aren't you? Yeah. There's a scene at the end that I oh, fucking yeah. love. <laughs> yeah. The people who committed this crime were counting on lazy cops that was the idea like that i mean that's what any murder that is made to look like a suicide that's what the people who do that are counting on is that the police are just going to go oh yeah there's no there's the weapon uh, it's just a suicide let's move on yeah they're like send the b team in on this one we don't need the the top tier and it probably would have just been left at that i think it's possible that even if all these other cops disagreed, I feel like Sandra Brown probably would have moved on relatively quick, except after two days, the FBI shows up and says they want to help with this investigation. And Sandra Brown points out that normally, like the FBI is very busy. The FBI, you know, they have they have sex crimes to track. They have civil rights to oppress. They got all kinds of things on their table. 
So they don't just show up and say, hey, this murder looks neat. Can we be involved? But this time they did. They normally wait for, yeah, they normally wait to be asked for help. But this time they just show up. And she was like, well, that's weird. Yeah. Because there is no reason for the FBI to get involved in a domestic violence crime. Like, it's not a federal crime. No reason for it. But they do. And also the FBI shows up and they immediately examine the note and decide what's Vladimir's handwriting. So don't worry, nothing to see here. Move on. It's just a murder-suicide. And Sandra Brown, her suspicion is if that is his handwriting, he was forced to write that note, which seems perfectly plausible. Seems very plausible. (laughs) Could explain the misspelling of devil. Yeah. And there are suggestions that this was the Russian mafia. And for some reason, the cops are skeptical of that. And I'm like, why? Like, why, why would you be skeptical of... The Russian mafia, especially if by this point you've already looked into all the financial dealings with him trying to bring Tetris to the United States. Like, that's what that's what the Russian mafia does. Yeah, we were only, what, eight years out from the collapse of the Soviet Union. Like, shit was mm-hmm. still fresh. Yeah, yeah. Things were things weren't great in Russia at mm-hmm. this point. And Putin was fresh on the scene in Russia at this time. Yeah, he he kind of shows up on the scene around the same time, 1998, 1999. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's when he starts his ascent. So Vladimir was Russian. He fled Russia to make money off of some shit that Russia tried to steal from him. So there's speculation that since he was profiting off a business started in Russia, he was maybe getting extorted by the Russian mafia, which again, I think stands to reason. And his business was failing, so he probably just wasn't pretty cash poor. Yeah. One of the things they kind of suggest is maybe he took out a loan from people who did not understand the intricacies of launching a business in the United States, and they wanted their money quicker than he could get it. The part where Vladimir and Alexei and Hank kind of part ways, that becomes important because they say at one point Alexei and by association, Hank also, got involved with a Russian oligarch who could protect the Tetris company from things like Russian mafia influence. But Vladimir wasn't involved with that part by this point. So he didn't have that same protection. So if the Russian mafia decided to come after him, probably assuming he's got a shit ton of Tetris money, which he really didn't, then he was kind of just a sitting duck for something like this. And also he was his family was killed with a hammer and a sickle. Oh, yeah. They do symbolic. Point, they do point that out. It would have been crazy if it was an actual sickle. <laughs> it would have been a little too on the yeah. nose. And they're like, what? This isn't Russia. What are you talking about? This is how all Russians murder suicide their family. So there are some checks that are written from Vladimir's account every month that seem like they might be payments to some sort of loan shark operation. I did not expect Jelaine Maxwell's father to show up in this. Yep. (laughs) Robert Maxwell, father of Jeffrey Epstein's co-conspirator. He at one point was found dead, just floating in water, naked. There's three autopsies. No one can agree how it occurred. But in the 1980s, Robert Maxwell was making a shit ton of money selling unlicensed Tetris cartridges without the knowledge of the Russian government. 
and they find out and boy, are they mad. But also the documentary just goes, I don't even remember who's quoted in it, but the person just says, and years later, he died. Yeah. But he had pissed off so many different people by that point. So yeah, they just wanted to name drop a little bit. Yeah. And (laughs) what's funny is I was watching this with my wife and at the same point (laughs) I put in the notes, okay, that's a stretch. She just completely independently of that goes, okay, that's a stretch. (laughs) That's so funny. Chris was in the room at the same time was like, Mark Maxwell, you know who that is. That's Glenn Maxwell's dad, but he pissed off a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah. Like it does seem like they sort of just wanted to drop that name. Yeah. To make it. Two out of two spouses agree. It's a stretch. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So while everyone is talking about the Russian mafia, A second autopsy report comes out, and it just doubles down on the idea that Vladimir pulled off this murder-suicide. Sandra Brown is unconvinced, but she's told they are done investigating it. And there's this really great moment where, during filming, the producers bring her a document that she has never seen. And it's a document dated two days after the murder that basically says any indictments in this murder could jeopardize an FBI investigation. What the fuck? And also they find out that the FBI had like issued subpoenas in this two days after the murder. And everyone points out it takes longer than that. So someone involved in this was already being investigated. And if if that's the case... I think that's your demon right there, because there is no way the FBI is going to come out and admit, oh, this guy we were surveilling very heavily in the United States murdered someone while we were surveilling him. Like the FBI is not going to want to admit that either that or they were investigating Vladimir for something. But it doesn't seem like it was that. Yep. Very strange. Mm-hmm. Much the same way that that one cop was talking about, oh, all the times I played Tetris, never thought I was going to have to uh, <laughs> be on the case of a murder. Much like the FBI writing these subpoenas and these reports and stuff, didn't realize, hey, uh, documentaries about creepy fucking weird murders were going to be a hit <laughs> 20 years later. Exactly. Who could have seen this coming? Sandra Brown, again, is absolutely correct in that the FBI and the DOJ would not be this interested if it was just a murder-suicide. No. So FBI agent Rick Smith, he appears on camera just to provide some context to the subpoena that producers found, the subpoena request that was sent when someone was trying to indict someone for something. And they show it to him and he says he doesn't know what it was about, but it's very unusual to get a subpoena the same day a case is opened. He also says if this was just a murder-suicide, the FBI would not get involved. So Sandra Brown decides she wants to find out who the witness was that was tied to that subpoena. She manages to find him, but he doesn't want to be involved. But he does say there's a lot more to the case than what the Palo Alto PD eventually came up with. And they tell her that there's an FBI file on Vladimir and that the FBI was interviewing people about the murder independently of the Palo Alto PD. FBI are a bunch of fucking characters. God damn. Seriously, something stinks. And so he says he told the FBI that Vladimir definitely didn't kill his family and that an FBI agent said, well, 
that confirms what we believe. So the FBI did not think this man <laughs> killed himself. They just told the Palo Alto PD that to get them off the trail. And he also tells Sandra to be careful, which, yeah, you, you probably should be in a situation like this. Yeah, I mean, but at this point, it's just like, if we she turns up murder-suicided, then we know. Then yeah. we know. Yeah. Yeah, because she does not decide to be careful. She does what I still maintain is one of the riskiest things a person can do. She files a Freedom of Information Act request, which is basically like sending a note to the government that says, I know you're up to something. Tell me what it is. It's a good way to get on the government's radar. But <laughs> she doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, she sends this Freedom of Information Act request and the FBI, it's like they don't say no. They almost make it seem like she didn't word her request right. Like she didn't specifically ask for the right thing. So they're like, I don't know. And nowhere at the bottom of their rejection is a thing that says, please resubmit with it worded this way. Like they're just yeah. like, <laughs> no idea. Can't like, give you you did anything. it wrong and we don't have anything, but we're not going to tell you we don't have anything. But also we're not going to not tell you that we don't have anything. Also, fuck off. Yeah. Yeah. In the end, it's just mostly fuck off. Yeah. So now we're on to episode three and Sandra Brown wants to go back to Palo Alto to re-examine the evidence and prove that Vladimir did not kill his family. There's a part early in episode three where Sandra Brown goes to the home where this happened and just like, she's like, fuck it, I'm going to knock on the door. And it's like, what if those people don't know it happened there? Yeah, like, hey, something horrific happened in your home. Can we bring cameras in? Like, no, get away. And then as if that's not weird enough, she says a neighbor agreed to let them come in their house and film. And I could see if this was like one of those subdivisions where clearly every house looks has the exact same layout inside. Like, I, I kind of live in an area like that where like most of the houses are pretty similar. This doesn't look like that. So... When she goes through this neighbor's house and starts saying stuff like, now this bedroom here, this was Vladimir's office. It's like, will you cut this from the documentary? This makes no sense. It was filler. It was definitely filler. And it like, how are you in another house going, well, this was Vladimir's office? It's like, no, no, it wasn't. No, no it wasn't. <laughs> Just to build a fucking soundstage or something. You were in a neighbor's house and now that neighbor's going to be all fucking traumatized just thinking about it. Like, I know it didn't happen here. What if his ghost is over here, though? Yeah. Just like in the easement in the backyard. Yeah. She brought him over. <laughs> so Sandra goes to the Palo Alto PD to look for evidence and finds out that the evidence has been destroyed. This part is really interesting. Yes. Because... Sandra, in her role with the Palo Alto PD when she worked there, she actually hired the person who is still working the evidence room at the Palo Alto PD. So they're friendly. And this person working the evidence room is like, oh, well, I have pretty bad news. All of the evidence in this case was destroyed in March 1999. So six months after the crime. That's nuts. Insane. Of a murder-suicide. Yeah. Like, even, I keep bringing up Kurt Cobain, but at least with Kurt Cobain, the determination was just suicide. There was no murder aspect. So, I guess it's fine that they let 
Courtney Love like melt the shotgun down four months later or something. But in this, yeah, there's a murder. Like you gotta you gotta keep that. There's I feel like there have to be rules about how long you have to keep yeah. murder evidence, but I guess not. Well, yeah, and they were even saying that normally this stuff is kept for years and years. Like six months is totally unheard of. And the the real fun part, though, in in this moment of the documentary is when she finds out who ordered that those documents be destroyed. And they are two of the cops who are being interviewed for this documentary, <laughs> Scott Wong and Mike Denson. And this whole time in this documentary, they're both like, yeah, man, we we think something's up. We, this, there's more to this than people are saying. And. Meanwhile, they're like conspiring with the FBI to destroy evidence in this case. They're such fuckers. I wanted to punch both of them. Yeah, it's it's a good moment because it kind of ends with Sandra confronting these cops. And I can't tell if those two dudes just like got duped by the FBI also, or if they're just crooked cops who the FBI pulled aside and was like, look, you know what you need to do. You have to destroy this evidence. I can't tell. Yeah, I think they're just kind of like... To, I got the impression that they're like the two guys that really take um, that whole like whatever you do, you know, like don't, don't abandon your partner kind of thing that cops are taught very seriously. You know, they're very by the book. They're very just like, yeah, what, I'm here to do my job no matter the stakes. And yeah. I will uphold all all that comes with that and i also what i love about this is this scene also is kind of breaking that blue wall of silence where it's kind of the same thing you just mentioned but well don't you don't tell on your fellow cops mm-hmm. like if they've done something wrong you don't like you're a rat if you out them she is out in these motherfuckers on a discovery plus documentary it's like God damn, like as much as people are like, oh, be careful. The Russians might come after you. This is who will fucking kill her for this is her fellow cops. Like it's not going to be Russia. It'll be her fellow cops who were made to look like bumbling fucking idiots in this documentary. But I still like in watch, people are going to have to watch it and like make a gut decision. I cannot tell if they destroyed that evidence because they legitimately believed what the FBI was telling them. I'm not completely convinced that wasn't the case. It's still sloppy police work, but I think I like I could see the FBI pulling them aside and being like, "Okay, look, we get that your less experienced colleagues think there might be something to this, but we're the FBI. You're just going to have to trust us. There's nothing to this. Go ahead and destroy that evidence." I still don't know if I would have done it. Like you could have been know. like, "All right, yeah, I'll burn it on the charcoal grill in my backyard." <laughs> Whoops, most of it's still there. Maybe that's why we don't have jobs like this where we're too uh, skeptical. Could be. Could be. <laughs> and yeah, they claim they don't have any memory of signing off on destroying that evidence. And that's the part where I'm like, shut up. Of course you remember it that. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah, it's 1998. Like and this the- is what they all say. This is one of the most memorable cases they've all been on. How do you not? How do you just forget all these details? Yeah. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Most memorable case I've ever worked on, especially the part where I destroyed all the evidence six yeah. months after it oh, happened. I don't know. And you kind of see that look on their face where they're like, how can I word this so I don't look like a fucking asshole? Yeah. 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 It's a problem. Mm-hmm. And I don't trust them. I don't trust those motherfucking fucks as I have it no. in the notes. 
I, <laughs> but then, with nine minutes left in the entire series, we find out Sandra Brown has more information. She talked to a friend of Yelena's who lives in Palo Alto. Shortly after the crime occurred, a family member of Yelena's went out to the store and came back to find someone rifling through her apartment. And she was allegedly so concerned that she never returned to the apartment and fled to America. Here's the thing. I don't know how much that matters. I was kind of confused by what she was getting at. Yeah, I think that that part of it was just like, how could this not be Russian mob tide of someone all yeah. the way in Russia shortly after it happened was so shooken up and concerned because... It's a little bit of a stretch, but I, I, I get it with like the through line of just like, but what about this if this was a murder-suicide? Yeah. And even if it's not the most convincing detail, I still think the Russian mob killed this guy. Yeah, I agree. And they did a pretty good job. They just should have only used one hammer, obviously, or take the hammer. Well, that's the thing. You can't take the hammer. That's going to look weird, too. Yeah. So using the two hammers was dumb. Killing him while he was laying on the ground was very stupid. Had they not done that, I think they would have gotten away with it. Yeah. Here's I the think thing. There I was two people on the crime. I think there least. were two people, and I think they killed his wife and his kid while he watched. And then Yeah, and then made him do the note. Made him do the note and then killed him. Uh -huh. Which uh oof, that is horrific. Yeah. Especially the part where it seems like the FBI maybe knows who would have been involved in this. Yeah. Yeah. And like, why did they already have a file on Vladimir? Like, what was so special about him specifically? Yeah, they Go don't specify why. I mean, the FBI doesn't even confirm it exists, I don't think. Yeah. But they obviously had a file on someone if they were getting, especially the part where you get they sent a subpoena request the day the case was open. Like, that means they had some prior knowledge of the people involved in this. And it seems like it goes beyond just them investigating Vladimir. Like, I wonder if... Because, like, there's a thing in Tupac's FBI file that mentions Tupac, near the end of his life, was being extorted by someone working in conjunction with I believe the Jewish Defense League, oh. I think is what they were called. And so the FBI was like on Tupac for that reason. Like they had FBI agents surveilling Tupac, but it was ostensibly for his own benefit. So I wonder if Vladimir's file is that same thing. I mean, and I'm not saying there's not more in the Tupac FBI file. Fucking obviously they were following him for other reasons, but it could have been something like that where they were just concerned Vladimir was going to be the target of someone they were investigating. Oh, and they just didn't swoop in quick enough. Yeah. Yeah, that, it could be. It could very well be. And yeah, in that case, they're not going to want people to fucking know. Like they're, they will fight tooth and nail to keep that from coming out. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's where like. That one, uh, was it Scott Wong who was like, I mean, you guys probably saw the training uh, where they showed the picture of the guy on his back with eight knives uh, in his like mouth or throat or whatever. And they were like, this was a suicide. Yeah. And it's like, that's not, that's not the same thing. No, like, that's a very extreme example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could use Gary Webb as an example of that. He was the guy who first reported on the CIA selling crack in- Los Angeles. And he eventually killed himself. But 
he shot himself twice. And the oh. thing is, that sounds like just on the surface, you're going to be like, okay, no, he was clearly murdered. But if you ask any of his family, any of his friends, they're like, yep, he killed himself. There's no way he didn't kill himself. What I like to think happened with Gary Webb is in that moment, he was like, if I can shoot myself twice, people will think the CIA did this. And that'll be pretty funny because the first bullet goes through his cheek. And like, you're not you're not going to shoot yourself in the cheek if you're actually trying to kill yourself. But if you're trying to kill yourself and make it seem like I think Gary Webb might have been trying to like frame the CIA for his death. Which, funny, funny stuff, if that's the case. Way to go out, Gary Webb. That but makes also, sense. If that was part of his MO, I'm trying to expose them of just like, well, how can I draw more attention to this and also fulfill my desire to not be on this planet anymore? Yeah, that second shot makes no other, makes sense in almost no other way, unless it was the CIA that killed him. But people seem to not think so. It was also way, way, way after that story. I don't think, I think the CIA was over it by then. His life was already ruined. Huh. So yeah, sometimes weird fucking murders happen. And this is one of them. And I don't know, this is like, this is the thing they always talk about. They're like, you know, the Russian mafia, they're everywhere. Seems yeah. like it. Yeah. They showed that map. They show a map at one point where they say all the, the states that have had like Russian mob ties, whether in crime related, it was like 38 states or something. Yeah. And especially an area like Silicon Valley, where oh, yeah. there's going to be so much money. And a lot of that is going to, there's going to be at least some Russian investor money in there. So yeah, it seems like this guy got killed by the fucking KGB or something. Yeah. They're a Sorry. country. Yeah. Sorry. The FSB. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wanna, they, they go by a new name now. Yeah, I don't want to get the acronyms wrong and anger all of our listeners in Russia. But uh, I think people should watch this documentary. It's really good. It's one I think of the. So too. It's yeah. one of the better recent true crime documentaries. Yeah, yeah, they really. Um, it all kind of came together. Like get get through the the parts where they really hammer in on the Tetris stuff. But other yeah. than that, it's really well done. Yeah, I, I mean, I talk shit about that part, but it's like 10 minutes. It's not that bad. Play Tetris while they're doing it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Pass the time that way. But yeah, as you can tell from the end of this podcast, which we have reached, there isn't really a conclusion to this. Like, the conclusion is still murder-suicide. Yeah. They don't make any arrests. They don't really identify any suspects because it's the mafia. Yeah, what are they gonna, even if they had, like, cold hard evidence, like, I guess it would put a lot of people at danger. I, honestly, I want to know more about, like, what's going on with Alexi these days, what's going on with Hank these days, but I understand, like, if they're not agreeing to be part of it, then there's only so much they can tell. Yeah, and I wonder what kind of contact the FBI would have had with them. Uh, yeah, there's, there's so many questions, especially, yeah, because those two... Because they refuse to be interviewed, there's not a whole lot that we know about Hank and Alexi. And you would think if, like, your friend was murdered, you'd want to maybe go on record and say something. But also not if you have the fucking Russian mafia floating over your head yeah. all the time. Which that also makes me feel like this was probably a mafia hit. Because those two won't talk about it. Like, if that guy, there would be, n other than it being... Uh, horrifying tragedy that is very sad there wouldn't really be any reason for them to not go on record and talk about their friend's suicide yeah 
that. I mean, the one guy, the one friend of Vladimir, he was pretty, uh, he spoke a lot. He, yeah. He was agreed to be interviewed with his face and voice all normal. So I don't know. Yeah. It's weird. It's a very weird story. I didn't know anything about it. This is new. It's a new documentary. It just came out this year. I don't know exactly when this year, but I think pretty recently. So uh, I think people should check it out. Yeah. I won't be shocked if they make like a movie about this in the future. It's got like, it's yeah. perfectly set up for that. Yeah, it sure is. And yeah, they could do like tie-ins, like there could be Tetris merch to go along with the movie. <laughs> yeah. Although they make a point in every <laughs> at the beginning of every episode of like the Tetris Corporation has nothing to do with this. Yeah, which it would be crazy if they did. They're yeah. Like, no, we go, want, okay. We absolutely <laughs> want to get in on that. Are you crazy? How much is a one minute commercial? So I think that's our episode. Yeah. Cindy, thank you so much. Have a good trip on your yeah, holiday you. trip. Yeah. That's going to be a good time. Do you have anything to plug before we get out of here? Nah, I mean, I don't know how active I'll be in the next few weeks, but if you want and you're not already, please follow me on all the social medias at Cindy Arvina Jr. That's Jr. like J-R. Yeah, I'll be, uh, I'll be active. I'll be doing stuff. Um... I have been more active on Instagram lately. You can follow me there at Adam Todd Brown or on Twitter if you want. Uh, also, adamtoddbrown.substack.com. You can uh, subscribe to my Substack and read my writings. I uh, am finishing up my season-long recap of the NBC hit reality singing competition series, The Voice. Uh, that finale just ended, so the last article in that will be up soon. And then I'm going to have to find more television to write about, I think. Who knows? You might have a we'll hard see. time. There's not that much TV out there. Yeah. Yeah. Not these days. <laughs> not enough channels, I say. No. Not enough streaming services. Yeah. Yeah. We, we need a few more. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's it. Let's get out of here. Cindy, say goodbye. Adios. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. We love you. <laughs>